The time is at hand. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. When we are successful, and we will be, we have a real chance at this new world order. One of the many spirits said to haunt the area. You know, we'll have to prepare for the next one. That will get attention this time. Unknown animal attack. We need a great reset. Babylon the Great is fallen, is fallen. Coming to you from 659 feet up in the Appalachian Mountains in a quaint little village in West Virginia. As my feet are dangling off a small rock cliff, you're in dark places. My name is Junebug. It really is. Did you remember to spring forward? I guess you probably have by this time, I guess. It's like three or four days after the fact. They've been talking about going to do away with daylight savings time for like 20 years now I think ever since that one bush guy was in they've been wanting to do away with the daylight savings time and for those folks listening in other countries that's like a crazy thing where we change our clocks up an hour in the springtime or back an hour in the fall time somebody get that started back in the 50s and I don't know why but I think we're the only country that does that and they're talking about going to do away with it again this year just like the other last 20 years they've been talking about going to do it kind of reminds me of like you go to see your favorite rock band on their farewell tour and then a couple years later they come right back kind of along those same lines this week on the show we have some classic poltergeist stories and we also have Mr. Jimmy Haunted here with the news Breaking news! A man dual-wielding raw steaks slaps diners in the face at vegan restaurant yelling, If you don't eat your meat, you can't have any pudding. And thank you to Fred Richards for sending in this week's uh, breaking news story. This is from Ojai, California. Apparently, this fellow named Clinton Brewer, 73 years old, has been arrested after assaulting close to one dozen people at a local vegan restaurant, Larry's Secret Garden. Clinton was seen entering the restaurant during the dinner rush with raw steaks in each hand. He walked from table to table, slapping people in and about the face with the bloody cuts of beef, yelling at each one of them, if you don't eat your meat, you can't have any pudding. How can you have any pudding? If you don't eat your meat, he would repeat this over and over until he was stopped. It was somewhere around the 12th victim of his walk by slapping when a good Samaritan intervened by tackling and restraining him on the ground until authorities arrived. Clinton, a long life resident of Ohio, has not been a fan of the all uh, the vegan restaurants popping up and taking over the city he loves. 
used to be a time when you could choose from several different places to enjoy a steak on a Friday night. Now you're lucky if you can find one. All these meatless options are silly, overpriced, and un-American. What about the folks that want some beef and don't care for your unkept armpits and electric cars? Well, the town I love doesn't give a bad word about us anymore, Clinton told our reporters via his jail cell. Of the victims, a dozen or so of them, uh, a dozen victims, three were sent to the local hospital with superficial wounds. Most of the injuries uh, were of the emotional variety. All of the victims had a chance to speak with grief counselors. A candlelight vigil is planned for this coming weekend in hopes of raising positive vibes to heal the community. Real or fake, this story is great. Thank you to UFO Fred Richards for sending this story in. And uh, Junebug, this has been Breaking News. Now back to In Dark Places. Thank you, Jimmy. Thanks, UFO Fred. And now here is the Nicolas Cage Meltdown of the Week. The only thing worse right now would be I spy with my little eye. I spy with my little eye something white. Do that again and I'll break your little arm. A poltergeist that had plagued a young French family for three years with bizarre phenomena proved resistant to all attempts by parapsychologists to dislodge it. Elmer Gruber and Susan Fassberg report. Thanks, Elmer and Susan. One day in November 1980, staff at the Freeburg Institute for Border Areas of Psychology and Mental Hygiene in West Germany received an urgent telephone call asking them to investigate an unusual and complex poltergeist case. The caller was a Dr. Fleur, a physicist, who had been investigating the case but felt in need of expert advice. He had heard one of the Institute's directors, Professor Hans Bender, formerly known as the Poltergeist Professor, whose tenacity in investigating poltergeist phenomenon is well known, and he hoped to interest Bender in the case at Mulhouse in France, with which he was concerned. Professor Bender listened carefully while Dr. Fleur outlined the facts. The case concerned a couple in their mid-thirties who were living with their young son, Jean, aged four, in a grand floor apartment in Mulhouse. Theory, the husband, was a technical designer and painter. His wife, Carla, was Spanish-born but had been living in Mulhouse since the age of fifteen. 
For the past three years, they have been plagued by poltergeist activity. The manifestations occurred at least three times a week and included the sound of knocking at the windows, also heard by other witnesses, of cars crashing, babies crying, or animals whimpering. A heavy table was seen dancing. Pillows and sheets were pulled away from the bed during the night, and the bed itself sometimes moved. Abrupt changes of temperature in the apartment were reported, and it was sometimes as hot as 80 degrees when the heating was turned off. To monitor the temperature changes, Dr. Fleur had installed a chart recorder, which would record the temperature continuously on a graphic readout, but the resulting printout was in a form that the machine was not, technically speaking, capable of producing. These manifestations, together with others that Fleur described, were classic poltergeist phenomena. They were teasing, playful, sometimes threatening, and at all times disruptive. The most unusual aspect of the case, however, was that the activity had been going on for three years. Such a long-lived case was almost unheard of, and as the investigators from the Institute were later to discover, this poltergeist was also downright aggressive. Thierry and Carla were seriously concerned for their little son's mental health, and it was easy to see why Dr. Fleur found the situation alarming. It is always a difficult exercise in these cases to devise a strategy that will both document the phenomena and at the same time get rid of them. Nevertheless, in the hope of achieving these aims, the investigators from the Institute agreed on the following plan of action. They would interview the family and any other witnesses and examine the notes Theory had kept since 1978. They would install a continuously running tape recorder in the apartment for several nights and conduct a hypnosis experiment in the hope of producing observable phenomena. This experiment was planned in two parts. The first part, Carla would be hypnotized and given the suggestion that something observable would happen later in the evening. For the second part of the experiment, radar equipment was to be placed in a locked room where it would monitor objects on a table. The objects were to be the ones that had already been moved by the poltergeist activity, according to the family. If any of the objects moved, the radar equipment would activate the Cine camera, which would then film the objects for 10 seconds. It was hoped that post-hypnotic suggestion might produce psychokinetic movement of prepared targets in the way that the Swedish psychiatrist Dr. Paul Jur had produced poltergeist phenomena in the famous Karen case of 1904. And we'll talk more about that later. <laughs> when the investigators of the Institute visited Mulhouse for the first time, they were warmly welcomed by Theory and Carla, who were obviously under great stress. They naturally hoped that the Freeburg team would be able to find an explanation for the unnerving phenomena in their apartment and rid them of whatever it was that was causing all the turmoil. The couple described how, 
at the suggestion of friends, they had begun to practice glass rolling when the poltergeist activity first began. Glass rolling is a variation on the Ouija board. The letters of the alphabet are arranged in a circle on the table and the participants place their fingers on an inverted glass which then moves and touches the letters, sometimes spelling out intelligible words. In the course of these sessions, the couple often received words in Spanish, which would seem to indicate a connection with Carla, but her curiosity and genuine surprise at the results seemed to indicate that this was not a case of trickery. They had attempted to communicate with the unknown trickster in the apartment through glass rowing. It appeared that he was called Henry, but the messages they received from him were often silly. Apart from hearing about Henry, the investigators learned a good deal about Carla's background on that visit to Mole House. She had begun to sleepwalk as a child of three. At the age of five, she was known to have an uncanny ability to recognize pregnant women, being able to detect a pregnancy even in its earliest stages. As a child, she had been playing one day with some friends in the kitchen of an empty house when they were frightened by loud noises. When they rushed to the door, they were dismayed to find it could not be opened, even though there was no lock. The children cried out for help, and eventually the door was opened, without any difficulty, by a passerby. Carla said that she had experienced extrasensory perception several times since childhood. She had had premonitions of her grandmother's death and had a detailed vision of a serious accident involving her brother just before it happened. Carla clearly had some psychic powers. Theory, on the other hand, said that he had never exhibited. He was plainly distraught and was considering selling the apartment. An examination of Theory's journal showed that Carla was the person around whom the activity seemed to center. She was almost always present when something strange occurred, apart from one occasion. She and Theory had gone to the cinema, and on their return, they found that the drawing room table had moved. It was quite three feet away from where it had stood before. An outstanding feature of the case was the amount of hostility directed toward Carla by the poltergeist. In his journal for 1978, Theory wrote... Carla sometimes feels punched in the stomach. She has received strong pinches on her leg. The black marks are visible the next day. He also said that scratches had been seen on her face and arms, and cuts on her arms had been discovered when she woke up in the morning. She had felt trapped in bed, as if held down by some strong arms, and had twice felt cold hands attempting to strangle her. The marks remained on her neck for two or three days and were seen by other witnesses. She had been given a black eye and had felt a strong force take hold of her leg and pull it. It was just pulling her leg. Theory's journal recorded. She said that if she hadn't held onto the bed, she would have been thrown to the floor. For several days following the incident, Carla limped. The journal entries for 1979 showed that the aggression toward Carla was becoming less violent and less frequent. 
Nevertheless, she still endured many unpleasant experiences. She twice found herself trapped in the outhouse, although the door had no lock. Cupboard doors closed brutally on her fingers, and she was showered with olive stones that fell from nowhere. Articles of clothing disappeared to reappear months later in strange places, such as draped over a painting. One afternoon, while she was cleaning Jean's room, Carla heard a noise in the kitchen. She ran to the bedroom door and opened it. She saw a small rug, which normally laid outside of the kitchen door, gliding down the hall. It was slightly levitated, and Carla watched it move up and down the length of the hall three times. And there's a picture of her pointing at the rug, and she's like, right there, it's that one. I'll try to put that in the YouTube video so you can see that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> After visiting Mohouse several times, the investigators agreed to proceed with the hypnosis experiment. Even Henry was consulted and gave his consent. A hypnotist named Gaston, living in the Mulhouse region, agreed to undertake the hypnosis. The first evening Carla was hypnotized, she did not go into a deep trance, but nevertheless, M. Gaston suggested to her that something observable would happen during the evening, and he added the post-hypnotic suggestion that the agent might be kind enough to do something between 8.30 and 9 o'clock. When 9 p.m. came, however, nothing out of the ordinary happened. After dinner, Carla, Theory, M. Gaston, and Dr. Fleur sat down together at the glass rolling table and asked Henry why he was being so uncooperative. The response bellowed out, No, no, no. All at once, M. Gaston. <laughs> why is it just M? Is that his name? Is his first name M? I don't say his first name. Just always refers to him as M. Gaston. M, are you out there? Shoot us an email. Explain this to us. All at once, M. Gaston went into a semi-trance. With deep breathing, he spoke to others and said that he had heard a message. The bed! The bed! <laughs> and Carlo ran to the bedroom, but found everything in its place. However, when the bed was moved, two designs were found drawn on the floor with a marker. A cross inside a circle and a triangle. Five days earlier... Similar designs had been found drawn on Carly's thigh. The bookshelves in the living room were then checked. They were a popular playground for the poltergeist. And even though he had checked the shelves earlier in that day, Theory now found that three books had been turned upside down. It was impossible to establish exactly when the drawings on the floor had been made. Carlos said that the bed had been moved two days earlier, when the room was cleaned, and at that time the floor was unmarked. She said she always made it a point of checking under the bed, because the previous year markings had been found on the floor three nights in succession. It was also not clear whether the words heard by M. Gaston had any real connection with the experiment. 
Perhaps he had perceived the markings clairvoyantly before the hypnosis session and the glass rolling. The investigators from the Institute met again in Mulhouse two weeks later to conduct a second hypnosis experiment. This time they hoped they would be able to film PK phenomena produced by post-hypnotic suggestion. Dr. Fleur set up his radar equipment and camera to monitor the objects arranged on a table. And the room was locked. If any of the objects on the table were to move again even a half inch, the equipment would trigger the camera and it would film for 10 seconds. Carla was put into a deep hypnotic trance. She was then given the suggestion that Henry should move the table or any of the objects on it. Everyone sat down to wait. By 1 a.m., nothing had happened, and the investigators were somewhat disappointed and had drove home. Half an hour later, just as Carla and Theory were on the point of going to bed, the camera was triggered and started to film. Instead of stopping after 10 seconds, it ran and ran until after 3 minutes, Theory decided to switch it off at the electric point, which was located outside the room. However, when it was developed, the film did not show any movement of the target objects. It seemed that something else had affected the radar equipment or triggered the camera. After examining all the equipment carefully, Dr. Fleur reported simply that the relay that should have cut the electrical current after 10 seconds had just got stuck. Was this pure chance or yet another teasing manifestation of the poltergeist? Questions. All that could be said was that the events seemed in keeping with the investigators' expectations that they would encounter difficulties with the hypnosis experiment. In the weeks following the experiment, the activities of the poltergeist seemed to be on the increase again. Young Jean began to talk in his sleep. He claimed to hear music when others could not, as did Carla at times. Jean also told his parents about visitors who came to his bedside at night and when he was playing with his toys. At last, in a final desperate bid for help, Carla in theory sought the advice of an exorcist who promised he would visit them as soon as his other engagements permitted. With the prospect of his help in the near future, they breathe a little more easily. When Carla in theory consulted an exorcist to help them clear their home of psychic disturbances that were making their lives a misery, they were desperately worried about the mental health of their four-year-old son, Gene. The exorcist reassured the couple that their experiences were by no means unique, and he made an appointment to visit their home at Mulhouse in France to rid the apartment of what he called a restless spirit. But before the day of the appointment came, Carla telephoned the exorcist to cancel it. She, in theory, had decided to leave Mulhouse and planned to be out of the apartment in less than two weeks' time. An alarming increase of paranormal activity had led to this decision. One afternoon, Carla had gone down to the cellar to get a bottle of wine for the evening meal. Halfway down the stairs, she thought she saw the outline of a dark figure crouched on the landing. Although she was frightened, 
curiosity prompted her to take a closer look. As she hesitantly descended a few more steps, the figure rose, reached out to her menacingly, and then vanished. Carla screamed and fled back upstairs. A day or two later, the figure appeared again, this time in the apartment. In panic and confusion, Carla ran right through it. It was not seen again. Naturally enough, after this incident, Carla did not feel like going down to the cellar to get the wine for dinner. So she sent Theory. When he got to the cellar door, he found it impossible to open. It seemed that the ground level beneath the door had risen. Theory fetched a shovel and started digging out the earth under the door, half expecting to find a grimacing skeleton. He had only got eight inches down when the shovel broke. Since he was now able to open the door, Theory decided there was no point in digging any further. The hole under the cellar door looked ridiculous and became a standing joke among the couple's friends. Two weeks later, on the evening of April 17, 1981, Carla spontaneously entered a trance-like state. This in itself was no longer an uncommon occurrence, and Theory had taken to keeping a loaded camera in readiness by his bedside in case something happened that he wanted to record on film. He had taken the precaution of sealing the body of the camera with masking tape to ensure the film was not tampered with. Rolls of film had already disappeared from the camera on several occasions. When Carla went into a trance and began to mumble, Theory grabbed the camera, but to his amazement, he could feel a lack of tension in the wind-on lever, which told him the camera was empty. When he broke the seal with a razor blade, he found that the film was indeed gone. In its place was a small folded piece of paper. Penciled on this were three designs, a triangle, a triangle with a cross inside, and a large dark spot with a protruding line. These designs were very similar to those the investigators had found under the bed and marked on Carlos' thigh. The next morning, Carla went into a trance again. Her attention seemed to be focused on a painting by Theory of a pregnant woman that hung on the wall beside the bed. She told Theory to go down to the cellar, insisting that she could see the painting in the cellar hole with something small and shiny on it. As he got up to go, Theory paused for a moment to look at the painting. At that instant, something dropped to the floor from behind the picture frame. It was the roll of film, missing from the camera. Perplexed, Theory headed for the cellar. There, in the middle of the hole he had dug, he saw something shiny. It was an open safety pin, stuck in the ground. And around it was wrapped a lock of hair. The hair did not belong to anyone in the family, and... Even the safety pin was not the same kind as the ones they used. The investigators from the Freeburg Institute had never encountered a series of events like this before and had no explanation to offer. Nor could they make sense of the series of apparently meaningless pranks that occurred at random during these weeks. The guitar played by itself. Horrible smells 
suddenly invaded the apartment and vanished just as abruptly. Carla and Jean saw Theory's silhouette walking around the house when he was not there, and water shot out of the kitchen tap like thick foam. Theory and Carla decided they had had enough. They determined to sell their home, and Theory found a job in the Antilles on the other side of the world. It was at this point that Carla called the exorcist to cancel their appointment. The Freeburg investigators believed the phenomena were due to the eruption of some kind of energy or psychic force, which in most instances was focused on Carla. The question was how to subdue this force, or better still, direct it into constructive channels. While the scientists, psychologists, and parapsychologists were discussing the problem, Carla was living in the middle of it, and in her own way trying to solve it. Quite unexpectedly, Carla began to produce automatic drawings. Like many other mediumistic artists, she was surprised and delighted with her pictures, which seemed to draw themselves. She never knew what the outcome of her efforts would be, and even the titles of her picture were written without her conscious participation. Her first drawings were grotesque family portraits with a driven quality to them. Later drawings exhibited more detail and a lightness of touch. They often represented scenes from her childhood. It became obvious that the process of drawing was an outlet that allowed Carla to express and release pent-up conflicts and problems. She said, I don't know exactly why I started to draw, but somehow it was a strong urge. I felt as if I had to get things on paper. My work was raw and strong, and sometimes the paper would tear because I was using too much force. I must confess I was shocked at first, although now that my pictures have become softer and less impulsive, I can look back at the first ones and see them as the expression of some strong feelings. She added that it was this directness of expression in an unsophisticated style that made the picture so attractive to her. The development from a crude, almost violent style to a softer, more lyrical one is typical of the change that is exhibited by several automatic artists. And the structure of Carlo's work is also typical of other automatic drawing. It includes the obsessive repetition of graphic detail, such as small scales or circles, filling up spaces with face-like designs, and using one line to represent two forms, as in a gestalt stretch picture. Even though these characteristics are common to many mediumistic artists, the way they are used can express the unique struggle of the individual artist in his attempt to come to terms with a dynamic inner life. For this reason, the Freeburg investigators regarded Carlos' drawings as therapeutic and to be encouraged. Up to this point, everybody concerned with the case, including the family, had believed that Carla was either the PSI source 
that is, she was actually causing the events. Or she was an unwitting catalyst, setting off poltergeist activity in the apartment. Whichever it was, events were linked to her, and Carla's outbreak of creative activity tended to confirm this view. However, while Carla and Theory were strapping up the last boxes to be sent to their new home, they were visited by a neighbor. Surprised to see their preparations, he asked why they were moving. Theory said something about a change of job and mentioned Carla's difficulty in sleeping. The neighbor then told them that the previous owner of the house, a certain Madame Aricot, had also had trouble falling asleep due to unexplained knockings and mysterious openings and closings of doors when she was alone in the house. She had sold the house, said the neighbor, because of these disturbances. I suppose you don't know that she recently passed away, do you? He added. This was news indeed. Was the house haunted after all? But Carla in theory had no time to consider this new piece of information. Two days later, the Freeburg team met them at the airport, where they were anxiously awaiting the departure of their flight to the Antilles. Last goodbyes were said, and the family walked happily to the customs hall. A few minutes later, Carla reappeared in tears. All her identity papers, the ones she had so carefully put in her handbag that morning, were missing. It took a lot of fast-talking and diplomacy plus the testimony of several witnesses to get Carla on that airplane, but finally they were off. A few weeks later, Carla, in theory, wrote from Guadalupe to say that everything was fine, more or less. Carla had found her papers in the new apartment, underneath the mattress of the bed, and the television had broken down, for no apparent reason, seven times. Was Carla causing these electrical problems? Or had the mischievous poltergeist taken a transatlantic trip? The Freeburg investigators had to confess themselves baffled, and the riddles remain unanswered. We're the Smothers Brothers, and when you think of me, oh, you think of me because we go together. Like Kentucky Fried Chicken, and their and their buttermilk biscuits. You know, no one cooks chicken the Colonel's special way. And their buttermilk biscuits are special too. They're made from fresh scratch, fresh fun scratch, yeah. Kentucky Fried Chicken, they do it right. The buttermilk biscuits so fluffy and light. Light, light, light. Kentucky Fried Chicken, the biscuits made from scratch. What a match! They do chicken right. This is Mr. Haunted, and this is this week's Cryptid Corner. This week, we're talking about the Beast of Busco. It's the subject of a legend in Churubusco, Indiana, about an enormous snapping turtle, which citizens claim to have seen in 1949. Despite a month-long hunt that briefly gained national attention, the Beast of Busco was never found. Now, how fast can this guy run? Come on, people of Indiana. The Beast of Busco, or affectionately known as Oscar, from the first discoverer, resides in Churubusco, Indiana, where it is supposedly a giant snapping turtle. 
Legend has it that the story starts in 1898 when a farmer named Oscar Falk supposedly saw a giant turtle living in the seven-acre lake on his farm. He told others about it, but eventually he decided to leave it alone. A half century later, in July of 1948, two Cherubusco citizens, Aura Blue and Charlie Wilson, sounds like two pitchers from the 1911 Yankees, also reported hearing a huge alligator, snapping turtle, weighing an estimated 500 pounds, while fishing on the same lake, which has come to be known as Falk Lake. A farmer named Gail Harris owned the land at the time. Harris and others also reported seeing the creature. Word spread and many expeditions were held to try and get the big beast out of the lake, including draining and motorboating the lake. <laughs> Not much else is known about the beast of Busco. Some say it is just hibernating and waiting for food to come to it. Some say the beast never existed, and it's just Oscar's way of making the sleepy town feel alive. Now they have a Turtle Days Festival, where Oscar is honored in the Turtle Days Festival each June. It includes a parade, carnival, and turtle races. A turtle shell labeled Beast of Busco hangs in the Two Brothers Restaurant in Decatur, Indiana. A small concrete statue of the turtle sits on the sidewalk at the main intersection in the center of Cherubusco. And there you have it, the Beast of Busco, a giant snapping turtle. Thanks, Jimmy. That Oscar guy, he's like the tortoise and the hare. He's got his little headband and his shorts and stuff, and he's just outrunning everybody in the town. He's great. We had that little teaser earlier, and now here is the actual story of trance and trauma. In September 1904, a Swedish psychiatrist, Dr. Paul Bjur, and his colleague, Mr. Wick, went to investigate the strange knockings that were disturbing a young couple living in a villa in South Sweden. The knockings seemed to come from inside the walls and floors and to follow the wife, Karen, as she walked from room to room. Karen and her husband had, like Carla and Theory, dabbled in glass rolling and Kara had been quite successful in receiving messages. But the glass rolling also brought on attacks of weakness and trembling, similar to ones Karen had suffered from years earlier. The attacks left her exhausted and unable to speak or move. During the glass rolling sessions, a character had appeared called Piscator. He addressed Karen in terms that were familiar and impertinent and declared his love for her in violent terms. Karen was extremely upset by this manifestation as she believed him to be a product of her own subconscious. The couple had moved into their new house six months earlier and on the first night 
Karen's husband had to be away on business. Karen heard knockings during the night but assumed they were caused by her guests sleeping downstairs. On the second night, she heard knockings again about every two hours and this time they were also heard by the maid sleeping in the house. Dr. Buer believed that it might be possible to probe an individual's unconscious through hypnosis and so produce, modify, or stop psychic phenomena. The first time Karen was hypnotized, she proved to be an excellent subject. During the second session, she fell into a deep hypnotic sleep. She was asked whether she could see Piscator, and she replied, no, he is far away. But she did say that she could see an old woman dressed in gray. Later, the same afternoon, Karen was hypnotized again. Asked, is Piscator who is knocking, or the old lady? And she answered, it is him, but the old lady as well. Bure asked if Piscator wanted to appear, and she said yes. When? That depends on you. Dr. Bure suggested that Piscator should come around 11 o'clock that evening and knock three times. The evening passed without incident. Then, at 11 p.m. precisely, three loud knocks were heard. And then three knocks three times more. When they went into the couple's room, Bure and Wick found Karen in great distress. Her arms were shaking convulsively, and she whispered, It's Piscator. A few minutes later, she returned to her normal state and could not remember the words she had just spoken. In a second session, Bure suggested that Piscator should come around 9.30 p.m. and knock three times. About 8 p.m., Karen started to get uneasy. By 9 p.m., she was showing signs of stress. Shortly before 9.30, Karen sat down near Bure and Wick, who had seated themselves near the light, to see if Piscator would make an appearance in spite of the light. He usually preferred dark. At 9.30, faint knockings began and continued for several minutes. Afterward, Karen was quite calm and showed surprise that anything had happened since no one had thought of provoking the knocks that evening. Other sessions were inconclusive, but it certainly seemed that on at least two occasions, hypnosis produced results. Apports, teleportations, psychokinesis on a grand scale, and all recorded on film by an objective investigator. This is the claim, at least, made for the phenomena that have occurred in Rolla, Missouri, as a result of Ed Cox's Minilab experiments. The films have generated a white-hot debate among parapsychologists, and part of the controversy surfaced during a special workshop at the Society for Psychical Research's Sanitary Conference in August 1982. It goes without question that this is the work of spirits, but whether of this world or the next, it is unsure, but they are intelligent. This was W.E. Cox's own summary of the apparently psychokinetic effects claimed for the SORAT mini-lab.
at the SPR's workshop, Less Charitable Claims, not to say innuendos, were aired concerning the filmed evidence. When Julian Isaacs first presented the films in 1980, he made the point that even if the Sorat Minilab were a fraud, the Minilab was a superb experimental tool that others could use to replicate psychokinetic effects under fraud-proof conditions. This challenge had been taken up by the first speaker, Dr. Peter Phillips of the McDonnell Laboratory for Psychical Research based in St. Louis. He had spent some months with Richards, the apparent centers of the phenomena, and had installed his own mini-lab and cameras in their basement at Rolla, but with few conclusive results. Seven rolls of film had been shot, clips from which he showed. In one, a piece of woolen braid apparently twirled in its own volition inside the glass box. In another, a tin box jerked about on the floor of the mini-lab. The best piece of evidence for PK, he felt, was the sight of a piece of paper shuffling about rather tamely, and even that, as Phillips admitted, was hard to see. Why did he think PK might not have been at work on the other objects? With studied casualness, Phillips mentioned that the braid, which had been supplied by Cox, had been discovered to have a clothespin embedded in it and there had been a sufficiently large gap between the curtain behind the mini-lab and the wall to have inserted a magnet, and thus caused both the tin box and the braid to move. Apparently unmoved or simply unaware of the implied slur, Cox interjected that a toy windmill in the mini-lab had revolved, and pointed out that even Phillips had remarked that the camera had, on several occasions, been triggered in some way not understood. Summing up, Phillips implied that Cox could have cheated, but that there was no conclusive evidence that he had. The next speaker was less concerned with such niceties. Tony Cornell, co-author of Poltergeists and president of the Cambridge University, SPR, warmed up to his onslaught by describing the pleasant stay he had enjoyed with Dr. J.T. Richards and his wife Elaine, where Dr. Phillips had attempted to give the Richards some anonymity by referring to them only as J.T.R. and E.R. Cornell apparently considered this an unnecessary coy gesture and blithely named them Cox too had been unreservedly pleasant and cooperative. Behind all this, one felt something was brewing, and it was. Cornell had laid some complicated traps for the mini-lab, or Cox or Richards, before leaving. He had decided to test what many consider to be the most suspect or outrageous of the phenomena surrounding the mini-lab, its allegedly paranormal ability to get letters into the postal system sometimes with exotic stamps equally paranormally attached. Cornell had bought some virgin-proof paper 
which he handled only with rubber gloves, placed sheets of it in envelopes addressed to various interested psychical researchers, and duly taken it to the home of the mini-lab. All four letters turned up, though some arrived by rather bizarre routes at their destinations, and Cornell then proceeded to have them microscopically examined. I told the agency that did it that I wouldn't mention their name, he said disingenuously. But if any of you break any laws, you might meet the same gentleman. And the police, who else, did, indeed, find fingerprints, or at least marks that may have been made by fingers, on the brand new, untouched, by human hand, paper. This seemed to be sufficient indication to Cornell that human rather than paranormal means had been used to mail the letters. The thought did not seem to enter his mind that the marks had been made by his rubber gloves. And then there was the night that Cornell may have caught Dr. Richards faking paranormal raps or not as the case may be. The raps had been heard in the Richards kitchen and Ed Cox had climbed under the table to try to locate the source. At this point Cornell saw Richards tap the side of the kitchen unit. The problem, he admitted, was that the sound of the rap was dull and fleshy. He had not been able to reproduce it by tapping his fingers on anything. Cornell also mentioned another occasion on which raps had seemed to be coming from the general direction of Tom Richards and suggested a trifle extravagantly that these had possibly been caused by the flapping of trouser legs. Ed Cox's objection to the finger tapping theory was simply that Richards is a notoriously fidgety man. Any fidgeting at the banality of the discourse thus far was soon stilled by Cornell's piece of resistance, his own mini-lab film. This, he stressed, was a serious attempt to inject some hard evidence into the argument that the Sorat films could or could not have been made by stop-frame technique. Graciously titled The So What Experiment, the film was superior to the original in almost every respect in color, clarity, and sheer scale and pointlessness of the effects. Small furry monsters chased each other inside and outside the glass tank. Glasses of liquid mysteriously filled and emptied. Airmail envelopes slid across the screen. All very fine, for this did prove the point about a possible fraud at work with the Rolo Mini Lab. Then cans of beans and packets of cornflakes began to dance in and out of the tank. Dedications were shown to our spirit friends. The audience was in the aisles. Not that there weren't critics of the film. The most ferocious was Brian Inglis, a consultant to the unexplained, who leapt to his feet and shouted, I hate everything to do with Sorat, but this is the most degrading spectacle. I've ever seen. Stanley Krippner, on one of his relatively few visits to the meeting he was chairing, suggested Mr. Inglis sit it out. Tony Cornell, considerably less embarrassed 
than most of the audience, chipped in. Why don't you do as you're told, Mr. Inglis, and sit down and shut up? Inglis declined the offer. And then it was W.E. Cox's turn. He began by saying that anyone could replicate effects under magician's conditions, but immediately confused the issue by rather disarmingly that, sure, there were some suspicious effects on the original mini-live film, but they didn't add to much. He then spoke in general terms about the paranormal events that had occurred in his presence both inside and outside the mini-lab. He had wraps on the roof of his car that 19 times out of 20 correctly indicated the number that showed on thrown dice. Wooden rings had been linked and other odd effects. Then he went through a number of frames from the mini-lab film pointing out for instance that in the midst of one sequence in which leather rings appeared to link paranormally. A single frame showed only one ring present. What fraud would have bothered to do that? he asked. To which the answer is, the fraud who plans to ask such a question. Perhaps someone, one day, will bring all the participants and all the relevant experts into the same room for a sane and thorough discussion. Perhaps. Yeah, I don't get why people want to try to fake this stuff. It's real, so just go with it. You don't need to try to fake anything. This is Mr. Haunted with breaking news. We have some sad news to report this week. This report was sent in by our In Dark News news correspondent, Paul Chadwick. And uh, here it goes. The Humboldt Penguin, thought to be the world's oldest penguin has died. Staff at the Sewerby Hall in Garden Zoo in England said their beloved Rosie passed away peacefully Friday. The life expectancy of the Humboldt penguin in the wild is 15 to 20 years. Rosie was just weeks away from turning 33. The head zookeeper said the staff is devastated by Rosie's death. The zoo plans to hold a special tribute Rosie is survived by her offspring, Twinny, Webster, and Flip-Flop, as well as her first grandchild, Pickle. Humboldt penguins, mainly found in Chile, are classified as vulnerable to extinction in the world, changes in climate, and overfishing of their preferred prey species are some of the reasons why they are threatened. So thank you, Paul, our uh, new executive in charge and new listener. This is Mr. Haunted with your breaking news. Back to In Dark Places. Breaking news. Thanks, Jimmy. And thanks, executive in charge. A lawyer's office in Rosenheim, Bavaria was the unlikely setting for a poltergeist case that completely altered public opinion on the subject of poltergeists in Germany. Armed with introductions from Hans Bender, director of the Freeburg Institute of Parapsychology, the authors traveled with a camera team to Rosenheim in the spring of 1975 to make a television documentary 
on the case for BBC television. Arriving at the center of town, they sought out Kongenstrasse 13, a tall building in which various professional men had their consulting rooms and which had been the scene of the notorious poltergeist activities they had come to investigate. They had centered on the office of a lawyer named Adam. Here, Adam told us that the events that were to become so famous began quietly enough in the summer of 1967 when telephone malfunctions were reported by office staff. Calls to the office of Rosenheim 1233 had been interrupted by clicks or cut off, and sometimes all four receivers would ring at once, although the line was dead. The malfunctions had become too frequent to overlook, and the office manager, Johannes Engelhard, called in repairmen from Siemens, the company that had installed the equipment a junction box and four telephones. I don't know, I think it's Mothman. He had those clicks on the phone, so remember that? The Siemens engineers worked in the office for several weeks testing wiring and equipment, although they found no faults. They replaced the receivers and junction box, but as this did not improve matters, they called in the post office what? <laughs> the post office comes out to rescue. I don't know. <laughs> Early in October, the post office replaced the Siemens equipment with official post office telephones. Ooh. They installed a meter so that, as they were made, calls could be recorded visibly in the office on a counter with a similar meter at the telephone exchange to provide an official record. At the same time, Adam asked his staff, the office manager, Johannes Engelhard, two office clerks and a part-time worker, to make a note of their calls. I guess the post office has fancy telephones. Who knew? On October 5th, 1967, Adam and Engelhard were amazed to see the meter register a call, although no one in the office was using the phone. On October 19th, the same thing happened while Adam was with accountant Dr. Schmidt, who produced an affidavit for Adam to show the post office. Comparing the records from his own meter, the meter at the exchange, and the notes from his staff, Adam realized these two incidents were by no means isolated. Dozens of undialed calls had been registered. The post office insisted that all the calls had been made in the normal way, and even more peculiar, they had all been made to the speaking clock. A row broke out between the post office and Adam. Adam pointed out that all his staff had watches and could hear the chimes of at least two church clocks and could therefore keep a record of the timing of their telephone calls. Furthermore, no one was ever alone in the office and it was ridiculous to suppose that so many calls 
could have been made unnoticed by anyone between 7.42 and 7.57 a.m. on October 20th, 1967, 46 calls were registered to the speaking clock. Adam further pointed out that although at least 17 seconds are needed to dial and connect with the speaking clock, even if one does not wait to hear the time, the post office claimed that as many as 6 calls a minute had been made and continued to send enormous bills. Nevertheless, on October 31st, they replaced the telephone again. This time the dials were locked and only Adam had a key. This step made no difference, and on November 8th, Adam was extremely angry to receive another huge bill that did not correspond with the records at all. Well, he's a lawyer. He can pay it. He issued an accusation against person or persons unknown of fraud or embezzlement. It began. For several months my telephone installation has been so disturbed that a regular telephone call is impossible. In the spring of 1975, Adams showed the reporters a sheaf of statements from the post office in which 0119, the number of the speaking clock, appeared over and over again. In five weeks, he said, the speaking clock has been connected between 500 and 600 times. In one day, 80 times. I was very angry with the post office. I even wanted to found an association for the protection of the subscriber. However, Adam soon had disturbances of a different nature to deal with. On October 20th, 1967, the office lights suddenly went out with a bang. Herb Bauer, an electrician from Stearns, a local firm, was called to repair them. He examined the lights and found that each fluorescent tube had been turned 90 degrees in its socket and disconnected. He had finished replacing the tubes and put away his ladder when there was another bang. The tubes had twisted and disconnected themselves again. He was even more puzzled when the office staff told him that the automatic fuses in the office ejected themselves for no apparent reason. Sometimes on all four circuits at once, Bauer began a full investigation of the office wiring and equipment, all of which he found in excellent order. He confessed to Adam, I was faced with a puzzle and called it witchcraft. Since no fault could be found in the office, he concluded that something must be wrong with the electricity supply itself. The German Electricity Board was asked to take over the investigation. Accordingly, Paul Brunner, auxiliary works manager, arrived at Adams' office on November 15, 1967. Brunner, a small and dynamic man, impressed the writers with his authority and his efficiency. He was born in Rosenheim and belonged to the second generation of his family to work at the electricity board. He told us that he had no interest in the occult but approached Adam's office with curiosity because of its scientific challenge. Yet, ironically, the official report he prepared became one of the most significant documents in paranormal research. 
The escalation of the Rosenheim phenomena can be seen when viewed chronologically. On November 15, 1967, extensive checks were run on the wiring and appliances at 13 Kongenstrasse, especially in Adams Flat. Everything was found to be satisfactory and short circuits were ruled out as a possible cause of the phenomena. On Thursday, November 16th, a Siemens Unirig, an electrical instrument that shows voltage fluctuations on a single track pin recorder, were installed at the office. Later, a Tektronics plug-in unit with a storage oscilloscope was added, giving two more pin traces that showed fluctuations in the magnetic field and the noise level. A pin recorder gave a continuous readout of current and voltage variations at selected points in the office circuitry and the times at which they happened. The machine was sealed to prevent tampering. Over the next few weeks, it was established that abnormal deflections on the paper record occurred, but only in office hours and never at weekends. So this ghost works 9 to 5. The automatic fuses were replaced with screw-in types and to rule out trickery, these were also sealed. On Monday, November 20th, after a normal morning of twisting tubes, inexplicable voltage variations and bangs, a fluorescent tube in Adam's private office fell to the floor and shattered. At the same moment, a huge surge in the electrical current, 50 amps, was registered, yet the safety fuses did not blow. On examining the readout, Bremer was puzzled to see loops instead of expected straight lines. Other tubes fell as the day wore on. On Tuesday, November 21st, as a safety measure, all the fluorescent tubes in the office were replaced by normal light bulbs. More loud banks were heard, and the photocopier began leaking chemicals. It was plugged in, but not switched on. Brunner wondered if the electricity were being conducted into the building through gas and water mains. The team ran a number of tests, and this possibility, too, was ruled out. On November 22nd, the light bulbs began to explode. The neighborhood was searched for freak power sources. None was found. On Thursday, November 23rd, the office apartment was disconnected from the electricity mains and was connected directly by cable to the transformer, high tension station K11 in Kongenstrasse. On Friday, November 24th, Brummer thought the mystery was over. He found full deflections on the paper record, some so savage that the paper had been torn by the pen. As the meter was connected directly to K11, he thought the fault had to be there in the supply itself, and that his team had been correct in pronouncing all the electrical equipment in the office satisfactory. With relief, engineers, equipment and cable were excavated from the office and camp was set up at K11 to pinpoint the fault. But no fault was found. 
camp was reinstated at the office. The entire supply grid of Rosenheim was checked and pronounced sound. On Monday, November 27th, a girl was cut by flying glass from an exploding light bulb. All remaining bulbs were covered by nylon bags to prevent further accidents. Four more exploded that afternoon. Between 5 and 6 o'clock, an alarming new development forced Brummer to admit he was dealing with something outside his experience. The lights began to swing. The next few days were spent observing swinging lamps and trying to find an explanation for their movement. We leapt repeatedly up and down the floor overhead to try to make the lamps swing without success. The traffic outside was also watched carefully and tests were made for electrostatic charges, but none were found, he said. On November 30th, the office was served from the mains and power supplied instead by a 7 kilowatt generator truck parked outside. The generator's meter showed a steady 220 volt output, yet inside the office deflections and crashes continued. Lamps swung, bulbs exploded, and fuses were ejected erratically. On Thursday, December 7th, over 90 deflections were registered during the morning. Lamps swung so violently that they smashed against the ceiling, denting the plaster. To vindicate his methods and results, and to safeguard his reputation, Brummer asked the advice of Dr. Carger of the Max Planck Institute of Plasma Physics and Dr. Zika of Munich University, two of Germany's most eminent physicists. Following a suggestion from Carger, Brenner disconnected the office supply from the Unireg and placed an ordinary 1.5 volt battery across the Unireg terminals. To the astonishment of everyone, instead of registering 1.5 volts until the battery exhausted its charge, the pin began its trace at 3 volts and then zigzagged wildly across the paper. The Unireg, which was in perfect working order, could not be monitoring the battery to which it was connected. On Monday, December 11th at 8.45 a.m., Brunner and his assistant, Mayer, were chatting together in the typist's office when suddenly a painting twisted on its hook. Surprised, Brunner stretched out his hand to straighten the picture. Other paintings in the room started to rotate, some falling to the floor. The typist's later said they had felt unusually tense that morning, were rooted to their desks with fear. But Mayer and Brenner stationed themselves at vantage points to observe the new phenomena. They saw the first painting to move turn through 320 degrees, its string wrapping itself around its hook. At this point, Brenner, realizing he was out of his depth, prepared to wind up the experiments and wrote his official report. In it, he was relieved to point out the excellent state of Rosenheim's electricity supply, which had been thoroughly checked to even Adam's satisfaction. Yet inexplicably, voltage deflection still occurred in the office. It became necessary to postulate the existence of a power hitherto unknown to technology, of which neither the nature nor strength 
nor direction could be defined. It is energy quite beyond our comprehension. Alarmed by the thought that there was no apparent way of controlling this mysterious and often harmful energy, Brenner handed over the investigation to the physicist who had been monitoring the experiments. Like Brunner, Dr. Carger and Dr. Zika were fascinated by the scientific challenge of explaining the electrical disturbances in Adam's office, and they carried out an independent investigation using the most sophisticated equipment. They concentrated on finding the cause of the deflections on the meter, installing probes to examine voltage levels, magnetic fields, and sound levels. Their questions and answers can be summarized as follows. Were the deflections accompanied by voltage surges? No. Voltage remained constant. Were the disturbances caused by high-frequency voltage transmission from outside the office? None were measured and none were found. An electrostatic charge? No. A static magnetic field? None detected. A loose contact in the measuring equipment's amplifier? None found. A second machine also showed the same anomalies. Ultrasonic or infrasonic vibrations? None found. Manual interference? Fraud or trickery? Impossible. While measuring sound levels, they noticed that although no sound was heard, their monitor showed a huge deflection. So they concluded there must have been direct pressure on the crystal in the microphone. They speculated that a similar invisible force could be acting on the pin of the unireg itself, causing the unnatural loops directly, independently of the electric current. They speculated further, the same force could be acting on the tiny springs inside the telephone, bypassing the dial. It was active only for short periods. Its nature was complex and it was not electrodynamic. Known physics could not explain it. Carter and Zika also felt that the telephone anomalies suggested that an intelligent force was at work because it had chosen to focus its attention on the speaking clock. It was clear that the force resisted investigation and this was another reason to speculate on the existence of an intelligence avoiding scrutiny. They prepared their report and left. As the physicists left Adam's office, teams of investigators from other scientific fields were eager to take their place, including Professor Hans Bender from the Freiburg Institute, who began his experiments in mid-December. He was joined by several policemen who had come as a result of Adam's exasperated accusation against person or persons unknown and independently these new investigators began gathering evidence the physicists had left two important clues first they had suspected that a rational being was behind the phenomena and second they confirmed that the poltergeist was active in office hours only Investigations were now centered on the office staff, Johannes Engelhard, Fr. Belmeyer, 
the part-time assistant, and the two clerks, 17-year-old Gustel Huber and 18-year-old Anne-Marie Schneider. As the paranormal events in Adams' office continued, work became increasingly difficult. The army of investigators and reporters who were constantly present did not make things any better, and the staff who felt they were under continuous scrutiny became tense and nervous. It was bad enough to have to cope with the poltergeist phenomenon that continually interrupted their work, but they also had to cope with mutual suspicion each time something happened. A typical event occurred on December 12th when Johannes Engelhardt, the office manager, was opening the morning post with a knife. Fur Adam called to him from the next room and as he walked to the door he heard a pitcher fall somewhere behind him. He spun around to see the painting lying on the floor, but that was not all. Neatly stacked on it were the letters he had been opening together with a knife. Although the two clerics were in the office, they could not have touched the letters or the picture in the moment it took for Engelhardt to turn around. All the same, he could not help suspecting that they had played a trick on him. Soon, however, suspicion began to center on Anne-Marie Schneider. She appeared to be the most tense of the office staff, and she twitched strangely whenever Poltergeist's activity took place. The Unireg record, which had shown deflections only in office hours, was checked closely, and it was found that events began at 7.30 a.m., the time that Anne-Marie reported for work. Hans Bender's team from the Freeburg Institute had discreetly centered investigation on her for some time. One day, one of Bender's assistants noticed a lamp swinging strangely as Anne-Marie walked along the corridor underneath it. It had already been decided that each of the office staff would take a short holiday since things had been so trying. This would also enable the research team to check who, if anyone, was responsible for the phenomena. Anne-Marie was given first leave, and sure enough, the office was peaceful again. When Anne-Marie returned to work on December 18th, she seemed even more tense than before, and screamed out when a lamp began to swing. The phenomena had returned with her, and with renewed intensity. Pictures swung merrily dropping to the floor with a force that dismantled the frames, but left their glass intact. Pages flew off the calendar, and the light bulbs exploded. Drawers slid out of their desks, and Fur Belsheimer, Belmure, had to wedge one shut with a stool weighted by a typewriter. And Marie grew more tense every day, screaming and sobbing when phenomena occurred close to her. Fortunately, the Christmas holidays arrived. Work at the office recommenced on January 1st, 1968. When everything had been normal for over a week, Adam began to hope that he was no longer Rosenheim's principal consumer of light bulbs and fluorescent tubes. Until 10.30 a.m. on January 9th, when Anne-Marie returned. As before, the phenomena returned with Anne-Marie. And as before, 
they had grown still more violent and Marie received an electric shock in her leg as she picked up a pitcher off the floor and Fur Belmier had a cracking sensation in her ear. The climax was reached on January 17th with only Emery and Fur Adam in the office. A number of light bulbs exploded. Emery was so frightened that she ran upstairs to the dental surgery where Hill Gestaller, the dentist, managed to calm her down. Give her some Novocaine or something. Later, the police came to photograph the damage. Anne Marie was back at her desk typing when the calendar fell off the wall and desk drawers slid out. Suddenly, a metal cash box jumped out of the drawer and clattered to the floor, spilling coins and stamps everywhere. The police, who also believed Anne Marie was somehow at the center of the phenomena, began to keep a closer watch on her. Wanna <laughs> take her to jail for all these pranks. Officer Wendell was in charge of the police investigation and he was eager to solve the case. His belief that he would eventually catch Amory moving objects physically was shaken that afternoon when a heavy oak cabinet moved a foot. The cabinet weighed over four hundred pounds, and Wendell realized that even using levers or with the help of Froland Huber and Marie could not have moved it. It had been lifted clear over the edge of the linoleum, which would have puckered had the cabinet been shoved, and it took the efforts of two burly policemen to restore it to its place. Had the cabinet episode not occurred, Wendell would have felt sure that he had proved his case, but now he doubted it. He was beginning to think, along with the scientists, that the ordinary laws of physics did not apply in the office, but as an extra check, he organized a search for tools. None was found. At 4.30 the same afternoon, Fur Adam arrived at the police station to inform Wendell that the cabinet had moved again. He and Officer Tischler accompanied her back to the office, which they found in chaos. The girls were almost hysterical because they had been getting electric shocks in the arms and legs all day. And before the second movement of the cabinet, tables and chairs had moved. One table had jerked along with a horrified visitor perched on it. When Fur Belmire left the typing room, her chair had risen, and Anne-Marie and Fallonner Hubbard's chairs both sunk. The height of the typing chairs is adjusted with a ratchet that, to prevent accidents, cannot be altered when any weight is set on them. Yet that afternoon, Professor Butcher of the Physics Institute at Polak, near Munich, had watched Amory's chair descend while she was still sitting in it. She was shocked. Her face blanched and then strange red patches appeared on her skin. That day she was given further leave of absence. As she left she noted sadly in her diary she had been asked to keep by Hans Bender. 18th of January as from today I am on the sick list. I hope everything will proceed quickly so I can have 
my rest at last. Adam lost no time, and Marie was dismissed and never returned to the Cognigstrasse office, and neither did the strange phenomena. During the poltergeist activity, the cost of damage had accounted to 15,000 Deutsche Marks, which the unfortunate Adam was obliged to pay. Hans Bender took the opportunity of asking Amory to visit his Freiburg Institute so that he could do some laboratory tests, and after initial reluctance to leave home, she agreed to spend from the 21st to 26th of January 1968 there. A team of scientists duplicated the circuits and equipment of Adam's office, hoping to reproduce the poltergeist effects, but none of the deflections or other phenomena occurred. It seemed that Emery could produce paranormal events only in certain specific circumstances. Abandoning the attempt to reproduce psychokinetics, Bender tried testing Emery's ESP abilities. Again, nothing significant was discovered except momentarily when Amory scored highly while upset by an unpleasant memory. This seemed to confirm that stress encouraged paranormal events in her case. Stress and frustration were seen to play a major role in Amory's personality. During her stay at Freeburg, she underwent extensive psychological assessment by a psychologist colleague of Bender, John Mishko. He concluded that she was unstable, irritable, and suffering from frustrated rages. She was unable to tolerate denial and was aggressive, although she suppressed her aggression. He believed that her constant frustrations discharged themselves through psychokinesis via a process yet to be explained. Her own doctor had remarked on the severity of her nervous symptoms which included hyperamia, an excess of blood gathering in one place, and cramps. Her cramp attacks always followed the same pattern. She would cry out and her eyes would glaze as the cramps spread. Her hands and feet would be worse affected. Fingers and toes stretched painfully rigid. Muscles in her knees and hips would also flex agonizingly. Professor Bender looked for psychological motives for the phenomena. He felt that the speaking clock was contacted as a result of Amory's constant desire to know when she could leave the office. Furthermore, it seems as if the damage in the office could have been prompted by aggression toward Adam, as Amory had felt particularly tense in his office and had disliked being his employee. Apparently, early on in the sequence of the phenomenon, Adam had sarcastically said, All we want now is for the paintings to start moving. And Marie was within earshot, and moments later, the first painting started to move. A subsequent incident confirmed, according to Bender, that Marie seemed to instigate psychokinesis in response to emotional problems. She seemed to Bender to be subconsciously trying to rid herself of her fiancé, who, appropriately enough, was an electrical engineer. They used to go bowling together in a small alley in Roebling, 
a suburb on the outskirts of Rosenheim. Bowls are returned automatically and the pins are attached to cords controlled by a system of relays that replaces them when they are knocked over. Scores are displayed on an illuminated scoreboard. And Marie continued the story. We had been engaged for three years and once a week we went bowling. On one occasion the relays behaved in an eccentric way and the bowling was spoiled. I was told the relays had been put out of action. I don't know what they were talking about. My fiance took the whole thing much too seriously and said that under the circumstances marriage would be quite impossible. That happened in the summer of 1969. Whatever the scientists belief about Emery's subconscious wishes, she took several years to get over her broken engagement. She felt victimized since there had been nothing to prove that the failure of the bullying mechanism was anything whatsoever to do with her. The final stage of the BBC investigation was to talk to Emery herself. They met her in April 1975. She turned out to be a stout plain girl with a sad prematurely aged face. She told us that after leaving Adam's office she had been employed by another solicitor, Winsler. Stories of her ability to move lamps and produce other phenomena followed her. This was the first in a long series of jobs since the unfortunate Amory would always be dismissed if anything had occurred. I never had influence over anything. I was very hurt indeed. Her Bavarian colleagues still had medieval superstitions and apparently whispered that she was a witch. She went on. I worked in Regerfelchen in a paper factory and there was an accident there when a man was killed. The workers who knew who I was said, That woman is responsible for the man's death. They didn't give me the sack from the factory immediately. They just dropped hints, so I left on my own accord. I wasn't even in the factory when it happened. Following that dubious case, Emery moved to Munich, where, in the anonymous surroundings of a big city, her reputation for producing psychokinetic effects was not able to catch up with her. Was this related to the fact that she apparently no longer produced these effects for, unlike most paranormal phenomenon? these seemed actually to be encouraged by attention from scientists in the media. Hans Bender pointed out that this most remarkable of cases was observed over a period of several months by more than 40 witnesses from widely ranging walks of life. Office workers, electrical engineers, lawyers, scientists, psychologists, and the police. For the documentary evidence, however, how Amory produced the phenomenon still remains a mystery. So that would be kind of neat to watch that documentary. I want to see that. And if you're out there, Amory, get in touch with us. We'd love to talk to you. And that's about all the show for this week. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Jimmy Haunted. If you've got a true scary story to tell and you'd like to be a guest on the show, send an email to endourplacespod at hotmail.com. We'll see you again right here next week. God bless you.